little public services announcement here to start off. Uh, just to make sure you know, I, I know some of you know this, some of you don't. I preach two completely different sermons every week. And this is because I'm lazy, actually. Uh, I find it much easier to preach two different sermons than to try to do the same sermon twice. Uh, if I were to try to do the same sermon twice, I would always be trying to beat myself. And that's not fun. So I just preached two. And for the last few weeks was set apart. We've looked at different texts in every service. But as we're going back to how to read the Bible, we're looking at the same text in both services, but we're doing it from two very different approaches. So if you come to the early service, you're going to get a 30-minute sermon that's going to give you the overview of what we're talking about. It's not going to go line by line through every verse. It'll do that some of the time. You're going to open your Bible, but it's, it's going to try to give you the big picture. And in this service, we go line by line through the entire chapter. Now, you're used to that if you come to this service. You know that's what we've been doing. But I want to make sure you know about the other service and its sermon, which you can find on YouTube or you can get at our website, sp815.org, because you're going to get a lot of new or other stuff in it. So, for example, in this service, I'm going to barely touch on who Kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah are. But we got like 15 minutes of that in the other service. And since some of you do go to both services, God bless you. You're, you're like super prepped here, right? Yeah, but, but for the rest of you, God bless you. You, know, you can go find more if you want to. I just want you to be aware that that's, that's how this is going. We're really providing out of St. Paul online an hour and 15 minutes of unique preaching every single week, not only for you, but also for the world who is being served by this. And if you'd like to ask me about that, I'd be happy to tell you about that ministry and and how it's impacting people all over the planet. So for this morning, what we're going to try to do then is go through Isaiah chapter 1, verse by verse, right? Uh, this is on page 566 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to turn there. And I'm going to try in about five minutes or so to give you what I gave in the entire sermon uh, before. But again, it's not quite going to do it all. Uh, there, are, there are two main problems with reading the prophets, okay? And by prophets, I mean the major prophets, that means they wrote a lot, and the minor prophets, that means they wrote a little. Uh, the, the problem with reading the prophets as just kind of an average Bible reader is there's not a lot of story. It's, it's not a story like, say, Joseph's story in Genesis, or uh, Moses' story in Exodus, or Jesus' story in Mark. Instead, what it is, is preaching. And it's preaching at a specific time and a specific place, which means that the story is kind of behind the scenes. But it's tough to understand the preaching without the story. Now, the books of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they give you a lot of the story for most of the prophets, but they don't make it easy. They don't always tell you where it fits in. And scholars have made oodles of oodles of writings and times trying to figure all this out. Uh, some of it is quicker than others. Uh, Isaiah, if you're there at page 566, he's going to help us out a lot because he says in chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. There you go. He placed himself smack dab in the middle of the history. 
although if you take the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, you got like 80 years. So then the question becomes, where does it start? Where does it finish? Especially since here's the other problem with the prophets. They don't always care about chronological order. That is, chapter one isn't always first in terms of when it happened. Sometimes it's more like a thematic moment to tell you what he really wants to talk about. And all the things that happened in a certain order when they were preached, they were written down in a different order to give you some deeper understanding than just timeline. But again, if you then don't have any timeline, it can be pretty tough to see why he's saying what and when to whom. And chapter one of Isaiah is a really great example of this. Because we can figure out from Isaiah that most of chapters 1 through 12 is preached in the final years of Jotham. He's the second king mentioned. And then during the time of Ahaz, he's the third king mentioned. In part because chapter 7, we're going to get there around Advent and you do every year. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 7 is preached directly to Ahaz. He's on a horse talking to Isaiah when it happens. Yeah. So uh, we can tell that Isaiah chapter 1 through 12 is mostly around Jotham and Ahaz. And we can tell that later in the book, Hezekiah comes in. But we can't tell at all where chapter 1 actually goes. We really don't know. What we do know for a fact, though, is it's not first in terms of order. Because that's chapter 6. Oh, goodness, that gets kind of tough, doesn't it? We're going to look at chapter 6 next week because it's going to help us as time-oriented Americans to kind of put the thing where we need it. But we're starting with chapter 1 because that's where Isaiah starts. And so let me suggest to you that it's here not because of when it happened, since we don't exactly know, not because of how fast or late in time it came, but because it's a good summary of the message of the entire book. So if you get chapter 1, you're going to kind of get what Isaiah is doing the rest of the book. Now, there's a whole lot more there, but we'll just leave that for that. And let me give you a little rundown of Uzziah and Jotham and uh, Ahaz and Hezekiah, whose stories you can find in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and following. If you wanted to go look up the four chapters and read that later this week, that'd be a really great thing to do. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 15 and following, you'll get the same story, only the kings of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, they're all worked in as well. You pick which one, but then just know this, if you go to the king's book, Uzziah is not even there Well, he is, but they call him uh, Ahaziah instead. So if you get there and you're confused, where's Uzziah? Uh, He's got a different name in Kings. That's not weird. That's very normal in the ancient world. All right, so Uzziah was a good king. He had an amazing life. He lived a long time. He strengthened Jerusalem. He built amazing weapons of war that defended the, the, the walls of the city. He established storage strongholds and food reserves. He had peace on every side. He had, he had guys from Sidon sending him silver. He had guys from Arabia sending him flocks. He was like a second Solomon in a lot of ways. And like a second Solomon in a lot of ways, he got a big head. He started to think he could do things that were against the law of God. And, and rather than just marry a bunch of foreign wives, what he decided to do was replace the priesthood in the temple and act like he was the high priest. 
This didn't go so well. The priests tried to stop him. They said, this is against Moses. This is against Torah. You're going to invoke a curse on yourself. He said, what do you know? And he went in and he burned a little bit of incense on an altar and bam, he was a leper. Now, we don't have a lot of leprosy running around these days, but if I just said cancer on the outside, right, on the face, on the arm, a little bit like that, and they say, you have leprosy, behold, and he covers himself and he runs out of the temple, which is a sign of his faithfulness and his recognition that he needed to repent because for him to be a leper in the temple was to desecrate the temple. And so he tries to preserve the temple. He runs out and he goes into hiding, I guess you could say, seclusion. He's no longer allowed to participate in any of the worship services. He can't come to church because he's a leper. But he does continue to reign. Even though his son Jotham is coronated and made king, he kind of stays behind the scenes and helps out from the back until he dies, which we'll hear more about that year that he dies uh, next week with chapter six. Jotham, though, his son reigns for, I think it's around 15 years after that. He does a good job. He's a lot like his father, only he doesn't make the same mistake. It actually goes out of its way to say that he's just like his father, only he didn't burn incense, which is a good thing of Jotham. Uh, We don't know a ton more about what he did aside from strengthening various cities and various places uh, and then, again, being fairly wealthy and at peace. But we do know that he had a son named Ahaz who he apparently didn't spend a lot of time in Torah with. He didn't teach him the wisdom of Solomon because Ahaz becomes king and he immediately begins taking down the worship services at the temple. He immediately begins setting up idols in Asherah all over Israel. He is as bad as it gets with maybe one exception, and that guy's name's Manasseh, who will come about later. But Ahaz, it's, it's that King Ahaz, the Bible even says. He's that bad, okay? Um, and to the level where he takes down the altar in the temple, takes it down, moves it to the side, puts in a new altar made to look like the altars to Baal. That's how bad this guy is. And in the meantime, then the Lord removes his hand from defending him. We'll hear more about this in chapter 7. He is then attacked by the northern kingdom. A guy named Pekah is the king of Israel at that time. And oh, I'm going to lose the name of the guy who is, is resin. There we go. Um, Pekah uh, allies with the king of Damascus, which also is known as Syria. And his name is Rezin. And they both together attack Ahaz's Judah. All right. So uh, as they're doing this, as a result of Ahaz's unfaithfulness, he doesn't repent. Instead, he takes a lot more money out of the temple and he sends it to another king, even farther in the north, a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III, who is the king of Assyria. Assyria is the empire in the world at this time. Uh, they, They aren't ruling over Judah, but they're ruling over all sorts of the near and the Middle East. And they're about a thousand years old. I know you've heard of the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So Ahaz says, hey, Nineveh, hey, Assyria, come help me against these two little guys here. And again, we'll get to this in chapter seven. Uh, The long end of the story is that uh, Assyria does wipe out the northern kingdom. That's actually what God said they should do because of their rebellion. Uh, But then they also come all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. They begin pillaging and stealing and and destroying Judea itself. And they come to the gates of Jerusalem. Ahaz is dead by this time. His son Hezekiah is king now. And Hezekiah, who comes to the throne at a very young age, seeks Jesus Christ and the word of God. 
and he listens to Isaiah the prophet. This is around chapter 37 or so. He listens to Isaiah the prophet who says to him, go and seek the Lord. Go to the temple and pray. Do not surrender. And he does. He goes and he prays in the temple. And that very night, angels from heaven come and they rout the Assyrian troops. They drive away a very small band who goes back to Tiglath-Pileser. And he hears word that there's a rebellion at home. And so he has to go immediately back to Assyria. He gets back to Assyria with his fairly broken army. And he is murdered by his sons uh, from behind while he's praying in a pagan temple. And then within less than a generation, the entire Assyrian empire, a thousand year reign collapses, just gone, lost to history, all because uh, well, they tried to take Jerusalem when it wasn't theirs and because Hezekiah prayed to the right God at the right time. So, so there's your brief history of the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, chapter one, verse one. Now, one more piece, and then we're going to kind of get into the text directly. So it, it seems, it's pretty clear that this first chapter isn't from any time during Hezekiah's reign. It probably is not from Uzziah's reign because although he does serve during Uzziah's lifetime, chapter six, we'll see next week, he gets his call in the year Uzziah died. So Isaiah only becomes a prophet for about a year of Uzziah's life. All right, Isaiah, Uzziah. I know that that's a little tough to put together there, tongue twister. Um, so it's probably during Jotham's reign, but maybe during Ahaz's reign, but probably at the end of Jotham's reign. Why? Because everyone thinks things are good, but Jesus thinks things are bad. That's really an important idea here for chapter one. Everybody thinks things are good. The church is full. People are going to services. Everybody's got money. Things are, they got peace right now, by and large. But God's looking at it all, and he says, under your belly is a whole lot of rot. And this is then probably not at the time that Ahaz has already torn down the temple, right? And taken the temple itself, torn down the altar, right? It's probably before that. That, that makes me think it's, it's in Jotham's reign. All right. So the message we're going to get here, starting off during Jotham's reign, is one of you think it's good, but it's not. So please repent so I can keep it really good. And this is going to be Isaiah's message his whole life. And again, by the time we're in Hezekiah's time period, that's what's happened. In the days of Hezekiah, the faith of the people is as strong as it ever was. They will celebrate the Passover like unto the days of Solomon. It's a great time for the kingdom. Yeah? And that is largely a result of Isaiah's preaching. As compared to, if you ever do just read the Bible straight through, the next book you'll get to, Jeremiah. Jeremiah has the same message to Jerusalem after Israel is gone and Jerusalem does not repent. And Isaiah, Jeremiah then lives to see Jerusalem destroyed and all the people taken to Babylon. Yeah? So that's the difference. Isaiah preaches repentance that is heard and generally believed, although not by the north. Yeah? And Jeremiah will then preach an unheard repentance, although exiles like Daniel will know about his book and will pray to God on the basis of his promises and things like that. Okay, so this week then's a little rough, all right? The text is not happy. It's God being angry. So I want you not to walk away feeling too condemned by it, but I also want you to walk away with your knees just shivering a little bit. 
Because let me put a, a, a parallel out here that's it's not really right, okay? The United States of America is not ancient Israel and never will be. We don't have a covenant on Mount Sinai with the Almighty God. And even though many of the founders of our country were indeed Christians and had certain Christian ideals and virtues that they promoted, in no way has the U.S. ever been a country that is a Christian country. There's been a majority of people who are Christians, but, but we have not been a Christian country. So, so don't mistake what I say here. But even though we've never been a Christian country, a majority of people in the United States have been Christians. And they have set up churches on every corner. I mean, you, you, you can't really go anywhere without running into a church building in this country, even on the East Coast, where most of those churches have closed. They're all now micro brews and a bunch of things like that, banks. Uh, but nonetheless, the history is there of us being a pious people. Right now, we are facing a time in which whatever piety remains needs to admit we've gone sideways. So maybe you yourself are the most faithful Christian that's ever been, never made any mistakes, never forgot anything, always been in church, always praying the Psalter in Jesus' name, completely committed to all things which are good and right and true, then you most of all, it's the time to fall down on your knees and repent. Say, dear Jesus, please do not bring the sword against us in such a way that we have to eat our children the way that they did in Jerusalem. Not just in Jerusalem, but many other places. Um, as an aside, I'm a, I'm a history buff. I like history. I don't wear a bow tie and little spectacles, but maybe I, maybe I should. Uh, and so I listen to history podcasts, and, and I picked up again recently a podcast on, uh, on Genghis Khan. I find Genghis Khan fascinating. And yet uh, the whole point of the podcast, podcast is why do you find Genghis Khan fascinating? He was Hitler. He killed millions of people. He just ripped through Europe and destroyed them all. Why am I bringing this up now? Because that happens in history. And what Isaiah chapter one should teach us as Christians is that we're always on the verge of that happening again. And the only thing standing between us and that is our prayers to Jesus. So as we hear these condemnations about worship, it doesn't mean stop worshiping. It means say to Jesus, thank you that I'm here. Thank you that my ears are open. And like the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. Yeah. So with that as our introduction, here we go. Verse two. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. A direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, calling the created order, heaven and earth, to bear witness that what's being said isn't new and is everlastingly true. We'll just leave that there. But also a reference to Deuteronomy 32, the rest of the verse, children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So, so God is saying to his people, I made them my children. Like St. John told us a little while ago, right? I made them my children, but they have rebelled against me. They stopped listening. And verse three makes it even more potent, I think. Uh, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So God's concern here is that those whom he has chosen as his own don't know it. 
And he's going to bring up some reasoning for why he thinks that in a moment. But again, this is, this is the danger, forgetting who God is, forgetting God's word, not listening to God's word and listening instead to false teachers, false religions, liars whose consciences are seared. That is, no juice gets in or out. So verse four, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Yikes, right? I mean, golly, yikes. Uh, And yet, and yet, and yet. So just to make the parallel, that's not a parallel. Governor Prisker is going to be in town this week to promote his abortion mill. All over this country, there are medical facilities giving drugs to little children to ruin their hormonal systems and make them be something they're not. They're even cutting things off. How far are we from this? And how different is it? If God were to send his wrath on us, do we not deserve it? So again, hear it uh, as if we were there. But then also remember what I said from the start here. We are the ones who are to be Hezekiah now. Our prayers are going to be heard now. And this text is here to get us to pray. That's what it's here for, right? Verse 5, you can hear God, he kind of doesn't understand us in our rebellion. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? He answers it, well, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Now, we could go into a very jargonistic, dogmatic description of how this is original sin. Concupiscence, the tendency of man toward evil, that from head to toe, we are corrupted And left to our own devices, we will choose evil. But I almost feel like that's just too easy. The image here is one of such sickness that you don't even know what's good for you anymore. Can you imagine someone who's so sick that they're kind of, they've lost their mind in the fever and they're choosing things which are not good, right? That's sort of how he's describing now ancient Israel and how I think we ought to see the Christian America that's not so Christian anymore. Yeah. Now for them, they are already being attacked, it would seem. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. Of course, I should say, this. so this could be during Ahaz. That would be the argument for why this is during Ahaz's reign. But it also could be a prophecy of that about to happen. What it very clearly is, and um, I'm going to make us turn there for just a moment, is a reference to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, uh, I don't have a page number for you yet, I will in a moment, uh, is on page uh, 104 of your pew Bible. If you turn there and find chapter 26 verse 14, so page 105, uh, there in the middle. I'm just going to read a little bit to you here, where as part of the Old Covenant, it says, But if you will not listen to me and will not do 
all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down by your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not lead its increased and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Uh, we'll, we'll stop there. It goes on through verse 39 and he lists all of these punishments that he's going to bring upon the people if they enter the promised land and forget him. And so this bit about your land lies desolate, your city is burned with fire, foreigners rule over you. He's basically saying, okay, now I got to do it. Now I got to do it. You won't trust me. You won't repent. You won't believe in me. Now I got to bring these curses upon you. Verse eight, back on Isaiah chapter one, page 566, verse eight. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Um, a cucumber field. Is that not the weirdest thing, right? Like, what do you make of that? Uh, so it, the easiest way to understand that verse is to go backwards. Uh, the daughter of Zion is left like a besieged city, right? You, my people, are going to be like a city with an army that's around it that you can't do anything about. And then that's what this lodge in a cucumber field is like. Although imagine now that, that you're a farmer and you got a big field and out in the middle of the field, you've got a little hut where you can kind of take some rest in the middle of the day when it's too hot to be working, right? You're far away from home. You're just going to take down a rest and then, then you'll leave, right? But now this hut is completely abandoned and there's no one to be seen to harvest the cucumbers. Now that's That's kind of the idea that's going on here. And similar then also, uh, the, the first part, a booth in a vineyard, same idea, like a little shack that's there for taking the siesta and you go and you peer in and there's no one there and the grapes on the vine, well, they, they've, they've become ripe to the point where they're beginning to rot. Where is everybody? Oh, like a besieged city, you're surrounded. You can't, you can't fix it now. That's the idea behind verse eight. So that verse nine, <laughs> If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He's already saying this. If Jesus isn't going to save people from Jerusalem, then they're going to be burned with fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. But this is the good news. In the preaching already, there's going to be a remnant. Big part of the theme of Isaiah. Big part of the theme of the Old Testament. There is always a remnant. Do you remember how Elijah flees from Jezebel to the mountain? He hides on the mountain. God says, what are you doing here? He says, I'm the only one left. God says, no, 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 no. There are 7,000. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Nah, but I get it. You're tired. I'll take you up to heaven in a chariot, all that stuff. But, but a remnant, right? There's always a remnant. And here again, Isaiah says, it's so bad for them that if it weren't up to God, they'd all be swept away. And I actually think I, we could say this right now of us in American Christianity. I, I think we got so loosey-goosey. We got so easy riding. We got so lazy that if God were not waking us up right now, we would have kept walking along with the Pied Piper right off the cliff. 
however you want to take the last three years, four years or whatever. I mean, it's been kind of a wake up call in a lot of different directions. And for me, it's wake up and read the Bible again. Get back into this story like it's the one true story that never changes because it is the one true story that never changes. And if God were not using this time to do that for you, for us right now, right here, well, then we would have been swept away. But that's the good news. He's, he's doing that right now. He's waking you up. He's, he's showing you the word. But now, again, speaking to those who do not believe, right? Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He means Jerusalem's elite. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And so he's, he's associating those who ought to be holy with those who were least holy of all from their own history. Uh, what to me now, the shift into the worship section, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, pretty clear. You go back, you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. God says, kill the goats. Do it just like this. It's good for me. It's good for you. It all works out. So what does he mean now when he comes along and says, I hate that? What's going on? And, And if you can see this, it will be an insight into every trick the devil ever pulls. The devil wants to make you think it's about what you do on the outside. But what Jesus cares about is redeeming your inside. And so if you're going to come along and say, well, I got my checklist from Leviticus and yep, check off, check off, check off. I'm great. Well, you're missing, you're missing something. All of those sacrifices are meant for you to be saying, I'm not great in the first place. So God at this point sees a nation that is doing all of these sacrifices, but within a couple of years, they're not going to be because Ahaz is going to take down that altar. And he's saying, what is the blood to me? You think the blood does anything? The point was for you to learn to listen to me. That was the point. The point was for you to learn to hear my word and believe that I'm in control and that it's good for you when I am. Yeah. And so now in verse 12, it's really something. I mean, he's, he's like, what are you doing here at church? Go home. That's kind, of, kind of what he says, right? Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? You're going to wear the floor out. You know, what are you doing here? And you might think of John the Baptist when he's, he's preaching by the Jordan River. You got people from all over coming out. Do you remember how the, the Pharisees send some scribes and they go up to him and what does he say? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? Right? You don't get to flee. You don't think you need to flee. Right? So again, the, the, the warning here is, is quite profound. Yeah? And, and you could really, again, ask this question of yourself just for half a second. Why are you here? What brought you here this morning? What are you hoping to get? What are you trying to prove? Do you need forgiveness? I mean, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. That's why I want you to ask the question. I want you to hear it in your own heart. Yeah. The answer is yes. But now, when we look out at the broad swath of American Christianity, is that what's going on? And 
I'm not going to condemn every church out there. There's good churches out there, but I'm going to tell you, I've spent enough time in Christian bookstores to care a lot more about the politics of the nation state of Israel than they do about the death and resurrection of Jesus. that's, That's a problem. Or you have all sorts of other churches waving rainbow banners, trying to do all sorts of other stuff, right? So, so who, who warned you to flee? That's the question. Verse 13, he's like, stop it. (laughs) Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Catch that thought. We're going to come back to that one. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Okay, so the, the only way to, to get this, like in our day, is to say that God hates Christmas, and God hates Easter, and God hates Thanksgiving, and he wish he'd just put the trees down and get rid of the lights, because it's starting to wear him out. Now, I'm not saying you need to feel that way about our trees. They're going to go up in a couple of weeks. But that's what's going on at this point. He's so sick of them arguing about how great the trees are and we should do it this way and that way so that we can feel great about ourselves. And by the way, we'll just ignore those poor people. He's so tired of that. that He's like, forget it. All of your traditions mean nothing when there is no repentance. So this is where then that line, um, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly, the middle of verse 13. The idea here is I can't stand it when you come to pretend like you're righteous and have a big celebration and then go home and act like a jerk. I can't stand it when you come and tell me you want forgiveness, but then you walk past the widow and the fatherless and you don't give a rat for what they're dealing with. And so he's going to get into how he wants them to turn their minds around. But first, uh, verse 15 First, he says, because there is blood on your hands, because you do not actually repent, because you're just using the church for your own greed, I'm not going to listen to your prayers anymore. You can make as many prayers as you want. Not going to hear it. That's verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. There's the key, right? So what good does it do you to beat your breast if you turn around and do violence to your neighbor? Uh, That's the idea here. So he says in verse 16, wash yourselves then, right? He doesn't say you can't repent. He says, before you repent, actually repent. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now, the widow and the fatherless are key examples of people who are helpless in the ancient world. So the point is the weak, right? Care for the weak. Learn what accurate measurement is in virtue and pursue that virtue, even though the world tell you that you need to stop. Get rid of the evil. Don't look at it. Don't watch it. Mm, think that one through. Don't watch it. Yeah. Uh, make your mind set on higher things. Paul says this kind of stuff all over the place in the New Testament. You know, pursue hospitality. 
gentleness, love, charity. These are not surprising things, but they are things that if you just walk out and live the American life, you're not going to be encouraged to do. You're going to go home. There's going to be a catalog on your, on your, your tabletop, and you're going to be encouraged to covet and try to figure out how to get enough money to get the stuff you want. You're going to go out, and you're going to work as hard as you can, ignoring the people around you because you need what you want. That's the life we're all living because that's where they're shoving us like cattle. Let's start not wanting that is the idea here. Let's pray for something better than just, I need more. Yeah. Let's learn to seek justice. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together. Again, I'm going to forgive you. The issue is not that he can't forgive you. Let us reason together, says Jesus. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And and don't miss it. I mean, he died. He died for that. The blood which flows from his veins goes into you through the bread and wine of the Holy Supper to give you a robe of righteous cleanness for all eternity. Right now, you got to wear clothes because we're ashamed. But on the day of resurrection, this tent you're in is going to become a building that will glorify God forever. Let's reason together, he says. I'll show you what I can do, but you can't keep trying to be evil. You can't keep listening to the lies. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And again, Hezekiah hears this. Hezekiah does this. It's not by Hezekiah's righteousness. He's not so good as to justify. All he does is say, I'm sorry, Jesus. And then Jesus spares them from the sword and he brings about good days again. You don't like inflation. You don't like the recession. You don't like the trans movement. You don't like this. You don't like the wars overseas. Which one am I talking about? Because there's more than one. If you don't like any of it, how about, how about we just pray with an earnest heart again? Yeah? Ask Jesus for better days. Verse 21 and following, it's a little grotesque here. How the faithful city has become a harlot or a whore. She who was full of justice. So again, he's saying, like, like Uzziah's days, it was good, but you're all cheating on me. Yeah? You got other gods off on the hilltops you go to worship. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers, right? You knew what goodness was, but now through your trade and your, your actions, you're basically putting the weak down. Right? I mean, right now, uh, there is a global reality that is challenging to, to all of us. And I'm not saying it's your job to fix it, but have you heard the news that like the food shortages are already in other countries like Africa? Right? So when you go home, what do you, what do, you do? Do you, do you? Do you think about that when you hear that news? You think, thank God it's not me. See what I'm saying? Like, like the murderous heart doesn't care about bad things happening to others. And what we want to be is people who care. That's the point. You're not going to fix Africa from Rockford, but you can care and you can pray. Your silver, verse 22, has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. That is all the stuff that you think you have that matters. It's actually kind of, kind of crud, right? The silver is impure. Your wine is watered down. All the things you tell yourself are so good, they're not as good as you think, right? Moth and rust destroy, thief break in and steal, Jesus said. Your princes are rebels and the companions of thieves. Doesn't need a lot of explanation in my book. 
Uh, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. Just turn on the nightly news. There it is. I mean, what are the commercials? <laughs> they do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them again. Governor Prisker will be here not to bring justice to the fatherless, but to see that they are murdered in the womb. That's his plan for Rockford. Therefore, the Lord declares, Jesus Christ of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So we moved from being a cheating harlotry of a city who has rejected God to him saying, so I'm going to chastise you with fire. But when that fire comes, it's going to burn away the dross and it's going to leave behind the actual good metal. And what does that mean? It means you're going to have teachers who teach the word of God again. Huh? That's what these judges and counselors are going to be. And indeed, that's what will happen under Hezekiah. He will see that the word of God is taught. Indeed, that's our goal here, is it not? Not just for us here at St. Paul, but for all Christianity. Our prayers are that the Bible would be opened and taught in its truth and purity to the people who gather, that we would become strong and wise in the word of the Lord, that it would be ever on our lips and in our minds, in our hearts, because that would be the greatest peace we could possibly know in this present evil age. So, verse 27, Zion will be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. Now, Hezekiah's prayer, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can you see how they're the same thing? Hezekiah's not enough. Josiah's not enough. Daniel's not enough. Jesus, he's enough. And he has redeemed us with true mishpat, measurement. He has redeemed us through repentance into true accuracy. Zedek, righteousness. He has justified us. This promise is right here already. But, gotta believe it. If you don't believe it, well, rebels and sinners, verse 28, shall be broken together. And those who forsake Jesus shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush before the gardens that you have chosen. In this section now, it's going to end kind of on a down note. Chapter one is going to really end kind of sad. He's just said, though, don't miss it. He's just said that justification is coming for those who repent. But if you don't repent, here's what's going to happen. And now he's talking specifically to those in Jerusalem who did certain things, okay? They shall be ashamed of the oaks you desired. That's the high places. You go out to a tree on a hilltop, You burn incense and offer sacrifices at the high places. You shall be ashamed of that, he says. And you shall blush for the gardens you have chosen. Again, places of sacred worship. Think cult prostitution. I mean, ugly, ugly stuff here, okay? But in a pretty garden. Uh, You'll be ashamed of that because here's what's going to happen. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and a garden without water. Now, I know here in northern Illinois... If you have an oak in your yard, the leaves drop, yeah? Uh, but in, in Israel, the terebinth tree, which is another translation of this word here, they were uh, deciduous, they're not conifers, they're deciduous trees, but they were evergreen. 
the leaves never fall. And so for you to be an oak whose leaves drop is unnatural and a great, great punishment. It means you're a dead tree. Yeah? And what's a garden without water? So he's saying again that, that I'm going to remove everything you think is good if you don't want me around because I am what's good. And if I remove myself, everything good goes with me. And at that point, the strong, verse 31, shall become tender and his work a spark. Both of them shall burn together with none to quench. Amen, end of chapter, but it's not the best end of, end of preaching. Uh, but amen, end of chapter. For those who refuse to repent, though they are strong, their own strength will be what destroys them. Though they've done many mighty works, it's their mighty works that will come back down upon them. So uh, with you know, just a minute here to close this up, an introduction to the book of Isaiah, the point of it is repentance. The reality of the history is that they did repent. Here we are now at a time when our country needs us to pray in repentance and let's, let's do it. Let's be the righteous. Not because we're going to earn it, but because that's what he said you are. Washed in his name, fed with his blood, purified and made immortal right now. Come, let us reason together and see what God will do. In the name of Jesus, amen.